Pearl Church exists to express a sacred story and to extend a common table that animate life by love. A primary expression of our sacred story is the weekly sermon. If our sermons inspire you to ponder the sacred, to consider the mystery and love of God, and to live bountifully, would you consider supporting our work? You can donate easily and securely at our website, pearlchurch.org, or follow the link in the podcast notes. Thank you for partnering with us in expressing this sacred story. God, we ask that more and more we would internalize that we are your beloved. Increasingly, let us rest into that identity. In your name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Eastertide is this season we're in of 50 days following the Feast of Easter, and it is a celebration of resurrected life, which is very much the same thing as human flourishing. Woven into our DNA as humans is the natural selection of traits that have preserved us and helped us to flourish over millennia. But from evolutionary psychology, we are learning more and more that we have these evolutionary behaviors that really don't have any benefit in our current situations, our environments. And in fact, they may even harm our flourishing today. Our Eastertide sermon series is exploring some of the inherent psychological barriers that can hinder human flourishing. Things like tribalism, uh, the need to please, Uh, the internalization of criticism, and the insatiable desire for more. Last week, Mike started off this series beautifully by presenting repentance as a way of talking about neuroplasticity, this idea that our brains, though wired now in certain ways, can learn new patterns, that they're malleable. So the word repentance, far from meaning stop it or change your behavior, uh, repentance is actually more like coming home, coming home. It's more like changing our minds, rethinking, looking again. Repentance is a kind invitation to find our truest selves. This morning, I want to pick up this idea and carry it a bit farther because what we learn from evolutionary psychology and from neurobiology invites us to take this idea of repentance and continue to flesh it out. I think when we think about repentance, we tend to think about repenting from specific actions or conscious choices we've made. Like, for example, uh, you have been robbing banks. You should repent of that. You see, when we think of repentance, we tend to think of those specific actions. But when we talk about coming home to our truest self or rethinking our way of being in the world, That has more to do with the habitual ways we see ourselves in our world. Things that we would never call sinful acts, but which hold us back from flourishing. Which hold us back from self-giving, creative love. And these things are deeper than our actions or choices, uh, or even our conscious and explicit thought. The gospel call to repentance, which is very much the same as neuroplasticity, speaks to all the implicit, inarticulate ways that we know the world that lie beneath our rational cognitive thought. Today, to get at this, I want to speak about our common experiences of being criticized 
or facing rejection. Now, there are multiple levels of criticism we can experience that descend deeper and deeper. To start with, there's just helpful criticism. You know, your annual job review, the day you dread sitting and hearing all the things you've been doing wrong for the last year. Well, that negative feedback can sting for a moment, right? But if it's in the context of a trusting relationship and you know it's well-intended, then you can bounce back after a day or two. Your well-being is intact. Then again, maybe there is a specific person in your life who's just consistently harsh and judgmental. And no matter what you do, uh, they never extend approval, and that rejection hurts. But you could maybe, if it's one person, write them off. You know, they're just mean. And you could avoid them and go on with your life, and your well-being, again, remains intact. But what if you can't get away from that person? Or what if that person is important to you? They, they have a role in your life that is deep and intimate. Or maybe the criticism and rejection you experience is widespread and comes from multiple directions. In, the, in those cases, we may find an entire area of our life becoming weighed down with shame. We may begin to internalize those messages. I'm bad at my job. I'm a failure. I'm not a good spouse or partner. I'm not a good friend. The way I look isn't acceptable. And further still, those experiences of rejection and criticism can begin to make our disposition toward ourselves and toward life extremely negative. This is the level where we encounter Hannah from the story we read this morning in the Hebrew Scriptures. Uh, there's a man named Elkanah, and he has two wives, so it's a good traditional biblical marriage. Thank you. Uh, Panina had children, but Hannah had no children. Now, in this day, unfortunately, a woman's social worth was directly tied to her ability to have children. And that left many women in very precarious situations because the man could reject or shame or divorce her. Here, though, Elkanah is unexpectedly tender. Though Hannah suffers at the mocking of Penina for her childlessness, Elkanah gives her a double portion on feast days to show her honor. He reassures her of his love for her. He says, am I not worth more to you than ten sons? But Hannah is not able to receive this. The criticism and rejection that she's internalized from her culture, personified in Penina's cruelty, impedes her from experiencing herself as loved. I suspect that most, if not all of us, have had experiences down at this level of shame and internalized self-rejection. We have felt criticism and rejection that overwhelmed us, and our efforts to shake it off, to talk or think ourselves out of it, have not really seemed to help. Now, in this place, the call to repentance, as we usually understand that term, might seem inappropriate, even cruel. But the call to come home to our truest self, to look again, to rethink our world, that, that seems more appropriate. And if we take this idea into conversation with neurobiology, it starts to take on some real life. So again, if you've ever been in the depths of self-rejection, shame, or, or really any strong, afflictive emotion, you probably know that trying to just talk to it or think about it differently might not really help much. And that has to do, it turns out, with the way our brains are structured. 
the evolution of the human brain didn't happen in one smooth process. There are actually three distinct structures which over millennia were added like layers, one on top of another. The oldest and deepest layer of the brain, which is perched on the top of the spinal cord, so like a little fist on the top, uh, is called the reptilian brain. And this part of the brain regulates our biological functions like heartbeat, core temperature, and our instinctual responses like fight and flight. Without this core of the brain, we couldn't survive. But with only this core, we couldn't form relationship or attachment. Have you ever stared a reptile directly in the eye? I mean, it's all creepy. They're, they just have this like cold stare because these creatures lack the brain structure to communicate or respond to emotion. But a dog, on the other hand, a dog can make you give you its, your sandwich just by looking at you funny, right? With those deep, soulful, longing, precious eyes on your soul. And that's because mammals have the next layer of the brain structure, which is the limbic brain. This second layer allows us to perceive and communicate our internal emotional states. It allows for play, bonding, attachment, all of which are crucial for the mother-infant care that all mammals display. Now, only at the third level and the most recent level of the brain, the neocortex, do we get into the capacity for abstraction, communication in signs and words, and rational thought. Now, imagine this brain. People call this the triune brain, reptilian, limbic, and then neocortical on top. Usually, when we try to deal with our brains, we are talking and thinking at ourselves but only one level of this brain can actually respond to rational thought. In the wonderful book, uh, A General Theory of Love, the authors point out, most people are aware of the verbal, rational part of their brains, and so they assume that every part of their mind should be amenable to the pressure of argument and will. Not so. Words, good ideas, and logic mean nothing to at least two brains out of three. Much of one's mind, one's own mind does not take orders. So, so much of our emotional and attachment life is processed first through our limbic and reptilian brains, which makes them inaccessible to direct rational thought. So when we experience anxiety or distress or rejection or shame, any verbal or cognitive attempt to rationalize it or to explain it away goes unheard. A wise psychoanalyst once remarked of the autonomic nervous system, which carries the fear responses from the reptilian brain, that that reptilian brain is so far from the head it doesn't even know there's a head. Now notice what that means for neuroplasticity, or as we're calling it, repentance. Changing our minds is not going to be just about changing what we think or what we consciously choose because this only addresses that top neocortical brain and it leaves a major part of the way we all experience the world untouched. If we're going to come home to ourselves, we also need to address the older nonverbal parts of our brain. So let's turn back to criticism as an example of what we're talking about here. Why is it that criticism can wound us so deeply? Why does rejection debilitate us and send us spiraling into shame? To understand this, we have to think about that second part of the brain, that limbic system, the part of our brain that enables us to express and com comprehend emotion, attachment, and bonding. 
Back in the 13th century, the Holy Roman Emperor Frederick II, who naturally at the time spoke several languages, became curious about which language was the natural inborn language of humankind. He supposed that all of us are born with one first language that's all the same, but it gets overwritten by the culture of our birth parents as we are exposed to our culture. So he set up what turned into a very horrifying experiment. He took a group of babies and he instructed their nurses and their foster mothers to care for their basic needs, like feeding them and washing them, but then in no way to speak to them or interact with them. So that he could find, his thought was, you know, if we didn't talk to them, we would find out with their first words what their actual inborn language was. But, terribly, all of the infants died before they could speak a single word. And the emperor learned that children cannot survive without the tender cooing, the murmuring, the gestures, and the smiles of their parents. You see, in humans, the capacity to connect emotionally, limbic brain to limbic brain, is not just a nice add-on. It's essential. We are physiologically not self-sustaining. Our brains require the presence of other persons to whom we can positively bond in order to regulate our biological systems. And this, it turns out, is a two-way street. Human physiology we could call an open loop arrangement. An individual does not direct all of their own functions because a second person needs to transmit re regulatory information that affects hormone levels, cardiovascular function, sleep rhythms, immune function, and more inside the body of the first. And the reciprocal process occurs simultaneously. The first person regulates the physiology of the second even as they themselves are regulated. Neither one is a functioning whole on their own. Both have open loops that only someone else can complete. This process is called limbic regulation. Ever since I learned about this uh, back in seminary, uh, when my dog Ari comes up to me with her big, sad eyes, clearly longing for affection, I say to her, always oh, someone in need of some limbic regulation? <laughs> and of course she is. Her whole body is in need of the regulation of my smiles, my praising words, and my positive regard. And my body is regulated in turn by her. Okay, we're in a place now where we can really consider what goes on in us humans when we experience criticism or rejection. As the authors of the general theory of love state, given that open loop physiology of mammals and their dependence on limbic regulation, attachment interruptions are dangerous. They are highly aversive. Imagine a puppy getting separated from its owner. I know, that's so sad. At first, the puppy will begin to protest. It will yip, it will pace, it might chew up your favorite shoes, right? It's gonna exhibit behavior that's an attempt to get attention and warm regard it needs for its security. But if that separation goes on too long, the puppy will enter a state of despair. It will become lethargic, passive, collapsed in sadness. Its biological systems are literally beginning to weaken. Well, we experience the exact same patterns as humans. If we are subjected to criticism or rejection, if that warm regard is withdrawn from us, 
At first, our bodies go into protest mode. We become anxious, we get fidgety, we might pace the room, we might ruminate over and over in our heads what we should have said to get back at that person or to defend ourselves, or we might double down on being really, really good to please and to get approval again. And of course we do. All of that behavior is directed to ward off the harm of the loss of attachment and to reattach because we are biologically at risk when our social bonds are threatened. If the criticism and rejection continues, however, we eventually collapse into despair. We become passive, tired, depressed. Our thinking gets foggy. We freeze up. Our biology actually suffers. It's not just a feeling. Again, this is all happening at the level of the limbic system, which is deeper than rational thought, so it can be very hard to talk ourselves out of this state. And if we experience ongoing, unrelenting levels of criticism and rejection, particularly from those who are close to us and with whom we've formed a bond, well, over time, our habituation to a limbic distress will form neural pathways that can literally make positive, loving experiences and even the memory of positive, loving experiences inaccessible to us. If an emotion is sufficiently powerful, it can quash opposing neural networks so completely that their content becomes inaccessible, blotting out discordant sections of the past. It's like it never happened. At this point, even when we do get loving, accepting, or affirming presence from other people, we can't receive it. We will tend to interpret others through a lens that's searching only for the negative and critical that we assume must be coming our way. And again, this isn't just a, a thought structure. This is a neural structure. And when someone praises us, we forget it quickly because the brain is literally sifting our experiences to hold on to what it expects to come, which is criticism. Now remember, this is all happening at a level below and not directly accessible to articulate, rational neocortex. We end up in a world where our precognitive and inarticulate sense of ourselves and of life is that we are not safe, that people generally dislike us, and we have a limbic system that is formed to heighten anxiety around people and to reject as invalid any data that would tell us that we are liked, respected, and safe. Down here at this level, we are like Hannah, weeping and unconsolable. Despite Elkanah's love, the criticism and rejection has run so deep that words can no longer help. Now, under normal understandings of repentance, again, I think it would sound cruel or harsh to call for repentance here, because there's nothing to be sorry for, right? There's no behavior to stop. But aren't these places, these places where our very neural pathways prevent us from flourishing, aren't these exactly where we need to hear the good news that we can come home? I think we need to start here with this hope that we can always change our minds. Neuroplasticity tells us that our brains remain malleable, that new ways of seeing and feeling and thinking can be trained into us over time. To start with, it's very hopeful to be reminded that when we experience and face criticism and rejection, what happens in us is thoroughly human and totally normal. 
Our very bodies are designed to throw up warning flags when attachment and closeness to others is threatened. And that's below our cognitive mind, so it's not accessible to conscious thoughts to, re to reframe it or to fix it. I mean, have you ever had that experience where you say, I know, I know better than this, but I still feel this way. Why, can't, why do I feel this way if I know better? That's just being human with the brains that we have. So to start with, we can all take a deep breath and be kind to ourselves when we get stuck in protest or despair or even internalized self-rejection. These are all very human responses. Understanding what's going on neurologically illuminates some strategies for us in finding healing from the shame and internalized self-rejection that can form when we've undergone harsh criticism. One way we can use our cognitive awareness to help in these situations is called noting. Uh, while we can't just sit our limbic system down and have a good chat with it and convince it that we're safe and loved, we can begin to open up space by gently noting to ourselves when we're experiencing criticism, anxiety, fear, or shame without trying to explain, dig further, or talk ourselves out of it. So the way it works is like this. When we become aware of a thought or a feeling of anxiety or a twinge of shame or we fear rejection, we simply say gently to ourselves, oh, fear. I see fear or anxiety or shame. Uh, when I'm alone and, and not going to look weird doing it, I like to include a, a gentle hand on my chest as a gesture of self-compassion as I say, oh, anxiety. There it is. I see it. I see you. Uh, fear. Shame. And it's a way to cue myself to be gentle with myself in that place. And what this does is it helps our cognitive mind become aware of our embodied deeper knowing. That's a cognitive thing we can do, but much of what we do to invite the coming home of repentance in our wounded, shamed limbic systems is going to be more experiential and embodied than abstract. Uh, so in many cases, under the care of a licensed professional, medication can be tremendously good in allowing our limbic systems to find calm and to become open to new experiences, and that's a real gift. The presence of a kind and non-judgmental listener, whether it's a spiritual director, a therapist, or a trustworthy friend, is often crucial here because that experience of that kind, affirming presence right in the midst of the places where we expect to get shame or rejection, that, that experience begins to rewire new experiential pathways. Over time, we open up space to hope for and receive kindness rather than harm. In our Christian tradition, meditation and silence in the loving presence of the divine is a wonderful way to give our frazzled limbic systems a chance to recalibrate. Uh, you might try finding a quiet place, uh, placing a beautiful icon or an image in front of you, something that makes you think of safety and kindness, light a candle, wrap yourself in a cozy blanket, and starting out small, we work up to longer and longer periods of silence, gently turning our awareness to divine love. And here, the goal is not to think about divine love, but simply to rest into it. In that silence, at a level deeper than words, our limbic system can begin to rewire to, to experience and to expect experiences of peace, 
safety, and calm. Of course, being around a trustworthy community is also an essential part of healing. But, but even as important, I think, is patience with ourselves. I think when we've been through harm, we tend to expect ourselves just to be able to choose to feel safe when we're in a new community. I'll, I'll be safe now. Uh, but it takes time to rewire new neural pathways and to develop the capacity to again receive kindness, acceptance, and belonging. And that's just, again, being human with the kinds of brains that we all have. And so the whole tone of repentance is patience and kindness to ourselves. When we allow our Christian tradition to come into conversation with our modern understandings of evolutionary psychology and neuroscience, where we end up is a gentler, kinder, and more embodied spirituality. We end up grasping that the places that we get stuck can't be argued with or talked into healing. Our places of wounding need to be heard, held with patience, and given new experiences that over time retrain new conceptions of ourselves, the divine, and community. So Pearl, may this be a community where we have the safety and the space to do this good work of repentance. May we offer one another and ourselves the gentleness and the kindness that allows our frazzled, activated limbic systems to cease protesting and find calm. And may we have the patience with ourselves to slowly enter into experiences of belonging and goodness that retrain our whole persons into knowing that we are beloved. For that ultimately is the coming home that we most truly need to come home to our identity as the children of God, for that is what we are. Will you pray with me? God, we ask for each of us here, patience, kindness, and experiences of belovedness that slowly rework our very brains to know that we are the beloved. We hope that this sermon inspired you to ponder the sacred, to consider the mystery and love of God, and to live bountifully. If you don't already support our work, will you begin today? You can donate easily and securely at our website, pearlchurch.org, or follow the link in the podcast notes. Thank you for partnering with us in expressing this sacred story.